Hello, my name is Jonathan Weiner. I'm here with another podcast episode of Headroom, uh, where we explore topics around audio technology and music production. And we touch on all kinds of things like music aesthetics and IP considerations and uh, equity issues and, and whatever our guests bring us. And today I'm very excited, truly excited, to be joined by Brian Pardo. And we're going to be exploring the intersection between new technology, in particular, probably machine learning and neural nets, and music and, and music technology. But Brian, I, I'd love to have you introduce yourself, if you will. And if you wouldn't mind, include a little bit about where, I don't know whether it's better to say audio or music and technology got hooked up in your life. Oh, okay. Uh, well, let's see where to start. I actually started out as a jazz musician. And um, so I, I play saxophone and clarinet. And while I was in college, I was taking a couple of computer science classes, maybe thinking about making it my minor. And um, as sometimes young men are, I was very sure of myself in certain ways. And so somebody... I was complaining about someone else's uh, soloing and improvising, saying, I bet you could program a computer to do that <laughs> uh, because they were just so hackneyed with the way they were just using finger patterns and whatnot. And a professor was passing by and he said, do you believe what you're saying? And being unwilling to back down, I said, sure. And he said, well, there is a scholarship that would pay for your senior year if you worked on a project with someone <laughs> um, on something interesting like that. And so I said, oh, that sounds cool. So I actually sat down and wrote up a project on trying to make a jazz saxophone, not saxophone, just a jazz improvising uh, piece of software. And I got the uh, I got the scholarship and I spent my senior year failing to create a meaningful jazz playing uh, piece of software. And one of the things I discovered two things in that endeavor. The first one was nobody wants you to successfully make a jazz player because everybody wants to learn to play music themselves. Music is something that humans do to express themselves. And I came to the realization as many people became upset with my project that it would be like saying, well, what if I took, took away the difficulties of vacation from you? You could stay home. We could send a robot out there to, enjoy the beach, go hiking, take the photos. A large number of people would say, but I live for vacation. Mm -hmm. uh, don't automate the things I want to do. And similarly, a large number of people don't want us to automate the things they love doing, they're dedicating themselves to. They want us to automate the things that they wish they didn't have to do. And so that was sort of one realization for me. And the other one was, why couldn't I make a good jazz saxophone uh, imitator? And the answer was, uh, it's about a conversation. It's it's relatively straightforward to make something that generates a string of notes. It is much harder to make something that generates a string of notes that are appropriate for the musical context being laid down by other other musicians, performers. And so the hard part wasn't spitting out sounds. The hard part was understanding my my musical context and then choosing to do something that would be appropriate for the moment. That was the hard part. Um, and so that hard problem got me so interested. Mm -hmm. I ended up getting a PhD in computer science after getting a music degree. Uh -huh. 
and um, and yeah, and so I'm still trying to figure out the right way to intersect interesting problems in computer science with solving problems, the annoying bits of being a musician, as opposed to the bits that we want to do. Gotcha. Um, and just to digress, because I, I want to pick up on a couple of things you just said, but you lead a, a group of research projects uh, at North in the context of Northwestern University, do you not? Yeah. So um, I am now uh, a professor of computer science with a also an, an appointment in radio, television, and film at Northwestern University. I'm a co-director of the Human Computer Interaction and Design uh, Center, and I also run a lab called the Interactive Audio Lab. And there, we make technologies that um, find their way into hearing assistive devices, into uh, DAWs, digital audio workstations, also sound effect generation, speech modification, lots of stuff like that. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Do a Google search for Brian's name, and you will come across a, a litany of endlessly interesting links to projects and so on. And you can go down the rabbit hole as I did and, and, um, and get delightfully lost in that rabbit hole. So anyway, so I want to go back to, to, um, just, just unpack a little bit more. First of all, the concept of automated versus assistive, um, because that's one of the things that you were pointing at a, a little while ago. Um, so, you know, people like to talk about AI or ML neural nets, uh, and use the phrase, you know, the robots are coming to take our jobs. Um, it sounds to me as if you're making a recommendation that maybe we um, we let the robots do certain things because it'll make our jobs as creatives uh, potentially better, easier, less friction, unlock creativity. Is that is that an accurate statement? Wow, that's a great, great way of putting it. Um, so besides being a computer scientist, I am a musician and, you know, I've recorded a bunch of things over the years. And so one of the things that we've all experienced is sort of being in a flow state. And that's, that's where you're not thinking about the mechanics of what you're doing. You're just thinking about the high level output that you want to achieve. And you just do that. And if you're a musician, uh, like a, an acoustic instrument player, maybe you spend years practicing the guitar so that being able, when you think of a G7 chord, you just play it. You don't have to think about where to put your fingers down. Um, and, and studio engineers, they spend a lot of time learning that instrument of, you know, Pro Tools or Adobe's Audition or any of these kind of things. But these are really complicated instruments to learn and they take a lot of time to master. And often a musician might find themselves into a, in a situation where they don't have access to a recording engineer, a pro recording engineer. Let's say you're hit with inspiration. It's midnight on a Tuesday and you have a DAW and you have your guitar and you just want to lay down a couple of tracks and do some things and hear how it's going to sound. And, uh, you find yourself spending an hour just making the signal chain work so you can hear the sound out of your headphones. And that totally takes you out of your flow. You lost the time you were going to spend. And so I started thinking about, well, I run into these kind of problems fairly frequently. Um, what are little things that we could do to make that experience easier for you? Not taking away any of the artistry that a, uh, a, a true you know, audio engineer master might bring to things, but get people who can't access such a person in the moment 
for this project that has no money over the hump. And so we just started with some really simple things like if you think about a parametric equalizer, those of you who are, you know, engineers out there, um, you know that that thing, a typical parametric EQ can have 20 knobs on it and a few switches to, to adjust the center frequencies of, of, of what you're boosting and cutting and the width and the band, the Q, they call it, the bandwidth that a filter has. And if someone walks up to that and let's say they're an acoustic musician and they've managed to record something and they say to themselves, I want to sound old timey, like I'm on a radio, like a little transistor radio from the 60s. If you're lucky and there's a preset called transistor radio, maybe you're in business. But if there isn't, you're going to spend the next, well, first of all, you have to know that it would be an EQ that would help you do that. <laughs> uh, and if you did, once you open up the parametric EQ, how long are you going to twiddle the knobs before you give up? And so we tried to come up with a thing, and we did, uh, which then became patented technology and you know bought by a company and all this. Um, where what you do is you describe this, you type in a word for the sound you want, like tinny. And then first thing it does is it looks up to see if any prior users had ever described something as tinny before. And if it does, then they hand you one of those. Um, if not, it says, well, I'm going to throw some EQs at you and you just rate them for how tinny they are. And after you rate about 10 EQ settings, it goes, I think I know what you mean. And then it hands you a setting. And there you just have to know what your acoustic goal is. You don't have to, and you have to know how to say, I like this or I don't like that. <laughs> you don't have to understand the inner workings of the device. And then it gets you into the rough place and you go, well, it's not exactly right, but it's pretty tinny. I'll, I'll, I get the idea for the track. And then if it's going really well, I'll meet up with a, a serious engineer later and we'll hone it. What's, what's really interesting to me in listening to you talk is it, it sounds like you're describing exactly what audio engineers do. We develop this these sort of you know semantic model to describe what we want to hear, and we develop a relationship with the technology to get us there. But you're you're sort of short circuiting uh, an element of that. You're sort of leaning into something that most people are experts in, which is using language to communicate, uh, and then letting the machine kind of make that next connection to sort of short circuit that you know the the knowledge that comes from the empirical sort of experience. Well, yeah, I, I like to think of it as just facilitating communication because sometimes, and one of the most annoying parts, by the way, of an engineer's job, where this idea came from actually was I uh, was this one. I was in a recording studio uh, recording an acoustic album uh, with a violin player. And the engineer said, hey, so what do you guys, what's your sort of concept for how this sounds? And the violin player said, I want it to sound live like a live recording, like you're right there. And the engineer said, okay, great. I get what you're saying. Let me, uh, you go to lunch. I'm going to do some stuff. And when you come back from lunch, I'll have a rough mix for you to check out. So we go to lunch and the engineer who also was kind of a big bootlegger, <laughs> that is to say he would go in into uh, live rock venues and record bands. His idea of, of live was it was really boomy, um, narrow panned, lot you know lots of reverb uh because he was always <laughs> recording <laughs> bad sound yes bad on. sound from the back of a room and so he thought he was he, the violin player wanted to go for that kind of experience 
Now the violin player, when he came back and he heard it and he goes, that's awful. That's nothing like what I wanted. And we spent a half an hour unpacking that. And it turns out he was thinking in terms of I'm a violin player in a string quartet. Uh, so when I say live, like you're right there, I mean, it's a really dry sound, not a lot of reverb. It's really wide pan instead of narrow pan, because I'm imagining the cello is on my left and the second violin is on my right. Mm-hmm. It was the exact opposite. And, um, and so some people who have tried some of the software that, um, we developed have said that this, one of the great things for this particular project was that it solves this translation problem without wasting too much of the engineer's time. So the engineer can say, you play with the software, get it into the ballpark, and and then we can have a conversation. Yeah. You know, what you just said actually reminds me of what, what is happening more and more often in music production, where people are generating their own sort of idea of their tracks in their environments and then sending them off for refinement. So that's that's actually kind of an interesting parallel. Um, one, of the, one of the questions that comes to my mind when you're describing this is every, every th- so maybe let's back in and talk about the way neural networks or machine learning models can be applied to this problem. And, and the thing ultimately that I want to hear you talk a little bit about is my, my, my understanding is that neural nets are going to learn what we give them. And, and to some extent, the models are going to be based on the data sets, the information that, that they get fed, and which totally makes sense. I mean, if you want a neural network to understand, you know, what a car is, is different from a tree. You want to show it a lot of cars and trees so it can distill that. In the context of creative work, uh, there's always this thing that enters the back of my mind, which is, are we not somehow constraining, driving no, I didn't mean to mix metaphors here, but, you know, driving towards this sort of homogeneity of what the, and, and the singular idea of what car or tree look like, and possibly not allowing for other sort of um, interpretations of those words. So to map it to a musical construct, you know, if, if, a, if a machine were to learn what a jazz saxophone would sound like or what it would do, um, you know, at, at what point would it be able to offer something that would be truly different or outside of the norm or what a different version? I'm not quite sure, you know, maybe you can make something of what, what I'm saying here, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, this is super interesting stuff. So I teach both machine learning and digital music instrument design at Northwestern. (laughs) So I think about this a lot. Uh, and in fact, one project that we're just doing, this is just as an aside, been working with some people at Sony to uh, make some deep nets that compose music. And we've been asking the question, how can we expand the range of things that it's possible for it to make and for that stuff to make sense? So I think about these questions a lot. I'm going to go back to really simple technology to point out some stuff and then we'll move forward. Great. Thank you. Whatever tech you use to create art is both empowering and limiting at the same time. So I'm going to take two acoustic instruments most people are familiar with. We're going to take the piano and the trombone. And so what's cool about the piano that the trombone can't do? Well, the piano can play more than one note at a time. And if you can play more than one note at a time, you can start to think in those terms and structuring music that way. And harmony is one of the things that people play with a lot when they are pianists. Okay, 
as a trombone player, you do not have the option to play a five-note chord. You just don't. But you can infinitely vary the pitch in a way that the original acoustic pianos, obviously now we have keyboards with mod wheels, but couldn't. Now, in the, in the West, we didn't do anything with that. But in some places, like in the Eastern Mediterranean, instruments that infinitely vary pitch, like violins, like trombones, or like the oud, um, ended up being the tools we humans used to create macam music, create this m- music with all sorts of microtonal variations that um, in, in the West, our music notation and our music sort of culture became dominated by piano players in some sense for quite a long time. So all of that classical music we're aware of, that was all written by piano players in a music notation like that. And it doesn't, the notation doesn't really allow good microtonal variation and, and the instrument doesn't allow it. And so their thoughts were constrained. You give someone a different tool and different constraints happen and different freedoms happen. Yeah. Until you get to George Crumb or uh, Kanla Nankaro or David Fusinski. Oh yeah. Well, so Nankro is a great example, right? He's like, now that I've got player pianos, I can now start composing and hearing things that no human could play. Um, You know, I'll just speed up the playback on my player piano and et cetera. So yeah, every time we give someone a new tool, it usually adds a dimension of freedom, but usually since it was designed in a certain way, you probably lose a different dimension of freedom. And now, now I'm going to come to neural nets and all of that. It is true that whatever training data you give the neural net is going to form its concept of what the world looks like. That's 100% true. And if your way of creating art is mediated by a neural net, it is going to necessarily be constrained by whatever a neural net can produce. But the fun part is, and let me see if I can describe this in just a few words. Um, So a neural net has these intermediate level representations. So usually there's like an input layer and an output layer. And there's a bunch of layers in between that we'll call its abstraction of the world. And there are a lot of people nowadays trying to figure out how to artistically use neural nets in a variety of ways to produce effects that we couldn't have produced before. So there is, for example, something called an autoencoder, which is something that I'm going to input audio on one end. I'm going to greatly, I'm going to try and figure out what are the key components of the audio in the middle of the neural net and greatly reduce the data. And then I'm going to try and regenerate the audio. So if you can imagine the way we've done this in the past with, uh, say, we'll take a pitch tracker and and a synthesizer. Mm -hmm. The way we would have done this in the past is I play a flute into a pitch tracker. The pitch tracker then segments the, the pitch, the track pitch into what it presumes are notes. And then I could assign those to MIDI values. And then I could pick any MIDI synthesizer I want to output the sound. And so there you're constrained by the failings of the pitch tracker. You're constrained by the, uh, sounds that your synthesizer is capable of making and and so but you can make cool stuff and it's not what you could make just with a flute and it's not what you could make just with a synth it's it's different these days uh google's 
Project Magenta, or in fact, specifically the Google Differentiable DSP project, has made this really cool resynth tool. Uh, it's based on neural nets. And what you do is you pick a recording of a single instrument to train it with. So like if it was me playing the clarinet, I play for about 10 minutes of clarinet music, just me solo. Then it gets a really good model of my clarinet playing. And then it runs a neural net based pitch tracker and a resynthesis thing based on my clarinet playing. And so then you get this thing, which you can sing into it and it'll come out playing the clarinet. And on the one hand, you're going to say, big deal. I already just described a way to do that without a neural net. But the thing is, it sounds different. Yeah. It's not the way the synths sounded. And sometimes it's really convincing and sometimes it's not, but it just expanded my palette of tools. And I'm, and you know, you learn to control that one. Another example is this, uh, Bach, like, like I said, I've been working with some researchers at Sony to make Bach four part chorales from the output of a deep net. And, and yes, it's, I, I could even play some of that stuff for you if you're, if you're interested. Um, and yes, it outputs something like, like Bach. And the fun part though, is you can get inside of its brain and we don't exactly know the ways we're affecting it yet. We're trying to come up with high level controls for it. And this is something not just us, but many groups are working on so that we can make the abstracted higher levels be something we can control. Because let's say you don't want to necessarily figure out all of Bach's four-part chorale writing rules, but you would like to say, I want it to be up-tempo, I want it to be in a minor key, I want it to start really noty and end really sparse, and I'm going to use this in a larger project. So it just has to have the high-level effect, vaguely Bach-like, and these other parameters. You know, then you get another thing you can you're in charge of, that uh, it this net won't ever spit out something that sounds like nine inch nails, mm -hmm. but for its purpose, if I know how to use it, it's another part of my arsenal of tools. Is is the fact that you're dealing in in a, a relatively simple musical construct? Um, well, I assume it's helpful. Um, you know, as opposed, I mean, when you look at, at something like modern pop production, which can be very, very complex, dense, um, and without clear lines drawn between pitches and noises and so on. Mm. That's got to be more difficult. Oh, for sure. Like a lot of the tools that we've created that involve some kind of AI, like the equalizer that learns what you mean. Mm -hmm. uh, we've done that also for reverb where you want to make it sound underwater and it goes, what do you mean by that? Let me try some reverbs. And then it settles on a, a concept with mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Those are all one by one tools. The Bach thing is a, it makes four part Bach chorales. That's all it does. It can't even make like Bach style piano music. <laughs> it, it can't, it, yeah. it does what it does and that's it. Um, yeah. Once you get to the vagaries and complexities of all the kind of artistic decision-making a serious uh, producer, engineer, or musician makes, that's beyond the scope of the, the tool. And yeah, and it should be. I mean, we're trying to make assistance to help us create art. We're not trying to replace the artist. Sure. So I was watching um, a video clip of yours where you were describing 
what you were referring to earlier as a clarinetist, for instance, you know, if you just have an idea or a vocalist or whatever, um, you want to be able to just have technology that will immediately be available to help you capture an idea. And you're yeah. discussing the, the complexity of, of technology and how it creates friction. Um, and that idea is also pointed to in some of these other tools, like the, the I said, was that the name of the EQ, I think, or one of the projects? Uh, um, no, that but, was, the EQ was IQ. IQ, right. I said is some, it's oh, the interactive yep. sound event detector. That's, that's label sounds for you. As, as I was watching the video, one of the things that I was noticing is in your playing, uh, as I was watching you play the clarinet, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of, you know, almost instinctive, um, kind of performative things that are going on, for lack of a better word, that I, I'm sure you acquired through a lot, a lot, a lot of practice. Sure. And, um, and so I'm what, and, and then when I look at the development of the, the tools that will help to sort of simplify the task. Um, so we can more quickly get to the coloration of the signal or the capture mm -hmm. of the signal or whatever the task is. Um, we are, or in doing that, you're, you're sort of removing some of the complexity from the sort of technical aspect of the, the, the problem, you know, or getting to the end result compared to what you're doing as a performer with the instrument. Where, where I'm ultimately going with this, and I don't know if you sort of already um, sort of got a sense of it, but for me, in my career, uh, I, I feel as if I've gotten to the point where a lot of the technical aspects of what I do are performative, that there's this sort of instinctive relationship that I have with the tools, not necessarily with one interface or another, with Pro Tools or Cubase or Logic or Ableton, but more with the underlying technology that helps shape the sound. And I'm wondering if and where that might show up, that that sort of level of depth that we can get to with these tools that are used to, to in some way, distill, you know, sort of aspects of the tasks. It, it almost seems, and so this is what I'd love to hear you address, it almost seems that by definition with neural nets, and it maybe even goes back to my comment earlier about homogeneity or homogenizing, but... We're, we're trying to simplify, and in doing so, do we lose the potential to be nuanced with the technology? That's, that's a great question. I'm going to come back to the piano and the trombone again. Mm -hmm. Great. So the piano greatly simplifies playing a note. I literally just push a key down. A cat can walk across <laughs> a piano keyboard and make it sound. Um, you can't, a cat can't do that with a violin or a trombone. There's so much work that goes into it initially making the tone on those instruments. Um, and yes, in the end, you have all sorts of fine grained control over the overtime production of sound. That's why we still keep things like violins and trombones and clarinets around. Um, because there's a lot in there that when you just play a trombone sample on, on a synthesizer, even when I'm like moving the mod wheel to try and give it a little bit of vibrato or whatever, it still doesn't feel right. Um, so it is definitely true when you make an interface that simplifies one aspect of it and like the piano simplif 
there, there you've got the simplifying the tone production. Um, you do lose something, but hopefully you're gaining something else because the most limiting aspect is basically my brain power. Now, I actually have a colleague who has made this really cool, I'm forgetting the name of it. His name is Andrew McPherson, and he's at Queen Mary University of London. And he made a piano keyboard that goes way beyond the mod wheel. Every single key on the piano is touch sensitive so that if you move your finger forward or backwards along the key, it'll vary the pitch. So at long last, we have a piano that you can, with each one of your fingers, provide individual different vibrato. Mm. And, and yes, it is true that someone out there will one day be able to do that. And, but for most of us, we'll never grasp the full power of that tool. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so why do I think of that? Well, one of the things you can do is, um, we actually thought about that tool a little bit and a student that was working with me, who's now actually, uh, at Sure Microphones made a guitar, um, and, and I promise I'm going to come back to how this can help. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, okay. So he made this, uh, guitar. It, it, it's the body of a guitar. It's got, um, sort of a, a touch sensor along the neck where you would normally have expected to have the string and the, and instead of frets, it's got just markers. So you strum with your right hand, you do a strumming gesture and it picks that up. But it was the left hand that was the interesting part because when you put your finger down, what he decided, what we decided to do, and I, um, this is a guy named Michael Donovan. He, great guy. Um, he ended up making this thing that um, if you drop your finger down anywhere between the two frets, it's like a normal guitar. There, uh, that means that you can get yourself within a half an inch and you'll be right on pitch. But once your finger is down, if you move it around, you will be able to pitch bend it the exact way you could with a violin or any other non-fretted instrument. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think about when designing interfaces that are supposed to be simple is, is there a way we can make the first initial interaction with it simple, getting you past whatever the main problem is. And in this case, any of you who have ever tried to play a non-fretted instrument know how hard it is to initially learn to just play on pitch and then give you back the freedom that you had with the original harder interface. Um, now with our, our EQ tool, IQ, uh, what happens is you have that first interaction and where it goes, what about this? What about that? You react to a couple of things and then it gives you an EQ curve. But then there's a button you can push in the lower right-hand corner. And if you push that button, all the controls of a regular EQ show up. And this kind of, we expect this to have two effects. One is if you never want to dig deeper and because you just, you want to get through one project and that's it. Okay, you'd rather have something that holds your hand and walks you through it and gets you 90% of the way there than something that could get you 100% of the way there, but it'll take you six months to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but once you push the button, you see what EQ curve got set and you can manipulate it like before. And we also have this other thing called Audialize, which took IQ one step further. And I told you if someone had previously taught it a word, um, we'd make that available as a preset. Well, what we did was we made a word cloud. So you can imagine a 2D um, picture of just words on the screen of 
things people have taught it before, and the more people who taught it the same concept, the bigger the word is on the screen. And if you click on any of those words, it'll show you the EQ setting that goes with the word. And the words are arranged not by alphabetization or something like that. Two adjacent words are two concepts that are close to each other in how the EQ sounds. Mm-hmm. So, or, or how the reverb sound. That's another one we did. So people independently taught this thing oceanic, underwater, watery, wet. <laughs> and, and we see a, um, the, the words end up in a space and all next to each other. And then words like crisp, clear, sharp for the reverb all end up in another part of the, of the, of the map. And, and this lets you, now we've got this wonderful three layer scaffolding that goes on. Look, if you can just use a word to describe it, man, I want it to sound really crisp. Mm-hmm. Okay. You type crisp in and it goes, what about that? And then if you don't like that crisp, you can sort of move around in the words next to it to see if that hones it. If that doesn't work, it, it says, Hey, I notice you're not finding what you want. Do you want to teach me? And if you don't want to do that, it says, click here, the controls to a regular EQ are right down there and you can, you can mess with them to your heart's content. And here's the fun educational part for me. We have the word cloud on top. We have the EQ controls on the bottom and I can scroll around in the word cloud and see how the EQ changes. And I'm learning from users of this tool, what EQ maps onto what words. Yeah, that's wonderful. That actually is a, a, a next sort of version um, example of what we already do with ear training, you know, around audio engineering. We're trying to hook up these concepts and trying to get people to notice the correlation between their own internal word cloud and what happens in front of them. But this is this sounds much more nuanced. Um, and um, I'm always excited about the possibility uh, for education or for people to educate themselves using tools like that. Um, maybe this is this question is more about the behavior of of our um, of people than it is necessarily about the technology. What you're describing is really compelling. It sounds these sound like tools that are fun to work with. You get more quickly into a place where you can actually you know, get some work done or enjoy yourself or whatever the thing is that you're trying to do. Um, we have been using the same paradigm for making recorded music for way too long. I mean, it's it's amazing how long the the analog studio has persisted in sort of a digital recreation of it in DSP. Um, in your opinion, what do you think it seems inevitable at some point that we're, we start to move away from the idea of tracks and channels and, and, you know, pro tools, technology or whatever, the, 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 the modern DAW or the ancient DAW, what do you think it's going to take? Is it going to be, um, is this something that happens just, is it an evolutionary step that gradually happens over time? Or do you think somebody's going to have to make a killer app that just finally people say, Oh, I can let go of that. And that's remembering that there are probably, you know, 500,000 people that have invested, you know, $300 on average each on some tech in, in the technology. So it's hard to give it, ask them to give it up tomorrow. But, you know, where does this begin to show up 
in a wider way in the culture of uh, the sort of music making community? Wow, that's a great question. So what you're saying, I mean, if we go back historically, um, why did Dawes look the way they look? And let's say we go back to the year 1990. At that point, you need like a $10,000 D to A, A to D converter to do engineering on your computer. And that means only serious professionals are going to do it. Mm-hmm. And serious professionals were very used to, say, an, a multi-track tape deck and a mixing board and the kind of hardware compressors, EQs. And so the software designers at the time, they said, we're going to make this so that you don't have to change your basic understanding of the workflow. So we're going to make our interface as much like your existing hardware interface as possible. And that's what happened, right? So we've got tracks, we've got scrubbing. Um, we've got, what is it? Uh, is it reason? Which is the, um, the synth software that's got to the point where you've got a patch bay and oh, back yeah. you can like, yeah, that's reason. That's, that's reason. And they went so far as to make it so that you use cables on the screen to plug things together. And if you pull a cable out and let go of it, it swings, right? <laughs> so they spent more effort on the physics model to make a visual of a swinging cable than they did rethinking the interface. And, 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 Actually, yeah, it looks like a photo of like a hardware rack in a studio. And and that made sense. Like I said, when it all got started, the heart, the interfaces were so expensive, only professionals who were already invested in the analog world were going to buy them. So we made that the thing. And then, of course, that got the reputation for that being the professional way to do things. And so this is sort of echoed and moved its way down market. There are things that push back like, for example, one could argue that GarageBand is is working to sort of rethink some of the engineering paradigm. Um, and you could think of GarageBand as sort of the spiritual opposite to Pro Tools. Um, and there are a lot of things happening in the uh, tablet phone space. And, and I would even say Ableton Live is, is an example of a rethink. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what has what's going to be is there's... Here's the thing I hadn't thought of before, but this is going to explain the generational thing. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look at a modern phone, like an Android phone, there's going to be an icon that shows this sort of curved thing with two lumps on either end, which those of us who are old enough know as the handset to uh, a, a phone from the 1980s or 90s. Yes. But I recently encountered, uh, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but someone who's like 15 today may have never seen a handset. So this icon, which evokes a physical object in my mind, mm-hmm. evokes nothing for this this person. Like a, a modern 15-year-old may just see that as an abstract shape with no particular meaning. And so I think we've now moved, there's going to be a generational shift. Uh, all sorts of crazy software has been developed for tablets and phones that because it wasn't serious it wasn't for the serious recording artist was free these things were free to rethink the whole thing and i think when good ideas come out of there they're going to find their way back into the other software and it's not like like pro tools is going anywhere anymore than i can still buy a clarinet today even though 
you know, there's 10,000 software synths out there. So I wouldn't worry if you're, if you like a DAW the way DAWs are today, they'll be here 20 years from now, but there will be new instruments coming along, new recording studio instruments. And, and these, I think will be mostly influenced by what happened in the phone and tablet space. Yeah. I, I, I that, that's a great answer. I, as you were speaking, I, I had images flashing through my head of my daughter who's uh, got a, a band um, deciding that they were going to release cassettes. And, you know, with, when you're talking about this phone and, uh-huh. you know, what's a phone that we, we sort of, we seem to have this endless fascination with digging things back up and let's go find one of those handsets and record our vocals through it, or let's use a tape machine or let's release a song on a cassette and see what happens. Um, but in general, I think what you're describing makes a great deal of sense and that, that people will gradually embrace that which is new and maybe even more familiar to them. Well, that's the thing. Like even me, the scrubbing is still a feature in every DAW. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I never scrub. Yeah. Why yeah. would I scrub? I can just jump to the place I want to be. Right. Um, all right. A couple of other things I wanted to, to get into. Um, one is the and we, we spoke about this, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, um, the difference between the idea of style and genre mm-hmm. and, and maybe this, this actually does relate to something that you've already touched on, which is the, a machine understanding intention as opposed to a machine describing a, an, a signal. I think you said mm-hmm. it during this last 45 minutes or so. So here's the question when we're talking about using machine learning to develop assistive tools for artists, um, would you think it's a fair statement that it's fairly easy to approach the idea of style and style transfer, um, or as opposed to the idea of genre identification and composition, for instance, within a genre? I mean, okay, style is one of those things. Mm -hmm. I would say, I'm going to talk about language for a moment. I took maybe 10 weeks of French. So if you make something that generates French, I'm probably going to be impressed. Now, if you told me it generated French poetry in the style of Moliere, I'm going to take your word for it. If, if it was like, we, oui, we, oui, blah, blah, we, oui, we, oui, baguette, I would still be like, <laughs> yes, that sounds so French because I know nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to be very careful. Style becomes more nuanced the more you know about the style. And so people are out there right now making machine learning things where they go, oh, I'm going to grab all the nine inch nails recordings and run it through a deep net. And then I'm going to hit generate and it's going to spit out some sort of incoherent mush, which has a vaguely, the sonic underpinnings are recognizably nine inch nails. And that's all I'll say about it. Right. And that the, the sonic underpinnings, I think is what I was using the word style to describe. Yeah. And so a lot of people, when they say I'm making deep nets that generate music in the style of, they mean that the basic underlying sounds, like I can tell that this is supposed to sound like guitars and drums. Uh, And they're like, yeah, that's rock. Sure. Nine inch nails. Why not? Um, 
But if you think of style as what are all the aspects of a style? There's the there's the lyrics. Like something is only a love ballad if it's got lyrics that are about love. Something is a blues if it's got a certain formal structure to the you know twelve bar blues. I got a one, a four, and a five chord. Um, something is you know a cumbia a style of music if it's got the doom 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 bass line and the right drumming so i could have a, a cumbia love ballad uh blues and so which style is it and which thing is a machine learning tool likely to hone in on mm -hmm. and the fact of the matter is if you hand it a bunch of cumbia what it'll probably learn is doom because that's a very surface level obvious feature they tend not to be good at understanding larger formal structures. So even recognizing that it should make a 12 or a 16 bar repeating form for a blues is often beyond what a deep neck can think of or do. And, you know, you take a song like, you know, love, love me do, you know, I love you. Nice, obvious lyrics like that. I could train up a, ne a neural net to spit out something like that. But if you have a more subtle song where they never directly say the word love, but describe things that make you realize that they're in love, that's completely beyond what we're capable of mm. making a machine do. Because it's not a surface feature. It's a deeper level understanding of the language. Thank you. Fascinating. So the, the, the thing I'd like to wrap up with, one of the projects that you had mentioned to me um, is an application where machine learning was being used to help facilitate um, interaction with, uh, I, I assume it was a music production environment, um, for people who were sight-challenged or blind. Um, and that's something I'd never really thought about, is how this technology could be used to facilitate um, that the interaction. And, and so could you yeah. talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually have had the great fortune of being educated by a couple of uh, my colleagues on, on this subject of interfaces and how, how visually dependent they've become. Um, so I, a colleague of mine at the University of Michigan, Shiloh Mandran, um, decided to try the hello world experiment for me. She's, she's, uh, a, a, a blind, uh, audio engineer, technologist, uh, musician, everything. And, and she said, okay, let's open up pro tools, which says it's blind friendly and works well with a screen reader. And I'm just going to try and record the words, hello world and play them back. And let's see how long this will take me. And for those of you who have ever seen something like pro tools, about a hundred buttons appear on the, uh, knobs, buttons, switches, dials, drop-down menus appear. And if you've never used a screen reader, they are one of the most painful pieces of technology I've ever experienced. You literally close your eyes, imagine this, you close your eyes and you tab around, you, you do like tab and shift to, to jump from item to item on the screen and it'll say like, Bounding box containing button, button is on. And you're like, button for what? There's just a button that's on. Oh, well, the programmer, when they put in the uh, alt text tag, they they didn't 
they just left it as the default, which was button, and they didn't put in button for what. I'm not saying this is Pro Tools' thing in, in particular. In Pro Tools, you get the name of the button, but the problem is there's 150 buttons on this knobs and buttons and switches on the screen. And if you want to get to the record for one track, you're tabbing around the screen for five minutes. Uh, and then you hit the record, and of course you get up a dialogue box, and the dialogue box takes you to a hardware preferences box, which takes you to another thing, which, oh my God, we never got it to record just from sound. Um, and I'm not singling out Pro Tools on this. This is all visual interfaces, and it gets worse when you move to this stuff I said was the wave of the future, tablets and phones. That At least with stuff like Pro Tools, they've gone to the effort of connecting it to a hardware keyboard that you can tactily feel. But if you try to use, say, um, GarageBand on an iPad as a, without looking at it, it's just not possible. Yeah. You, it's, there's just no way to do it. So... Um, in consultation with people like her and a, and a man named Byron Harden, uh, who actually runs a, a school for teach, to teach engineers to work with flow tools and pro tools, blind engineers to use that. And uh, Tony Stockman is a great gentleman out of Queen Mary University of London who's also thinking about these issues. They informed our thinking quite a bit. And so I'm working with Anne-Marie Piper and Darren Gurgle on this larger project for how do we rethink media production tools so that you don't need to use your eyes. As one step towards this, here's something you might not have thought of. Um, let's get to the saxophone track, mm -hmm. right? So how do you get to the saxophone track with a screen reader? Well, right there, I have to click and tab, 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 through 32 tracks to find it each time. It's horrible. What if I could say, take me to the saxophone? And for, and then I could say, instead of having to scrub, as I mentioned, I don't like scrubbing. Um, what if I could say, I knew that there was some point where the, uh, the trumpet player in the room coughed. They were both in the same room when they were recording the sax track and the trumpet player coughed. And you want to get to where the cough is. Um, and you might see like a spike in the audio or something if you look at the visual waveform, but you can't do it if you can't see it. And so wouldn't it be nice if you could say, take me to the sax track, find me the place where there's not saxophone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Any place anyone was talking or anything else, and it could just jump you to that. And that right there, that starts to be a win even for those who can use their eyes to look at the waveform. And here's a problem that we discovered when... And, and so what we're doing, uh, I'll say, is we're trying, one of the first things we're doing is trying to automatically label tracks and their contents on a second-by-second -second basis using a deep net. You know, training it on a set of things like what are the typical instruments you might hear, sax, guitar, piano, drums, and have it labeled on a second-by-second -second level so that you can say, jump me to the sax track, jump me to the first place where the sax is playing in the sax track, and where this is going to be a big win also for sighted engineers, as I was reminded, I'm working on a project right now where one of us uh, is using Pro Tools and another is using Logic. And if any of you have ever dumped a project from one DAW and tried to import it to another, you know, even just labeling the tracks is going to take you the next half hour. Mm -hmm. What if on read-in for everyone, 
the, the tracks were automatically labeled and organized into stems. So like all the drums are in a drum stem or a group. We'll say a group. I'm not at stems yet, but so it'll make a, a, a group of drum sounds, a group of horn sounds, a group of vocal sounds, and they're all labeled sax, vocals, tom, snare, kick. Um, it's a win for, for uh, people who can't use their eyes to do this, but it's also going to be a win for people who can. And then you're going to wonder, why did I ever have to do this? Yes. That's truly assistive. You, you may or may not realize that you've described one of the features in Neutron, which is you know one of the products that Isotope makes. Where the, <gasps> It's instru- automatically labeling tracks? It is. Instrument detection. Auto- second by second? It can't label them in the DAW because we don't have access to the DAW's information. But if you instantiate the plugins across, a fairly lightweight plugin across every track, mm-hmm. run learn, it'll generate a quick starting point for your mix along with instrument types and even recommended treatments if you want i love isotope that's awesome <laughs> i'm gonna have to go back and look at this now because that's like, thought, yeah isotope is a company idea. yeah they keep making stuff based on the kinds of technologies people like me are developing they've also got the uh the source separation stuff that uh that we've been working on and uh and and i've been complaining no one's adopting and then isotope adopted it so that's wonderful Maybe this means I don't have to do part of the stuff we were planning on doing. <laughs> no, keep working. Don't stop. Anyway. Um, well, thank you. This is great. I feel like, and I, I, I think we've kind of scratched the surface of a number of uh, different ideas here, but hopefully um, people who've been listening will find it very stimulating and maybe stimulate them to do some more investigation of new and different kinds of tools and interfaces that are out there maybe even build some of their own. But just to remind everybody, I want to um, invite you to Google Brian Pardo's name and go down the rabbit hole. Uh, So that's Brian with a Y. That's kind of important. That's very important. We'll make sure we include that in the podcast name as well. But it can't be said often enough. Thank you for that. Um, Great. So any, any sort of final sort of thoughts about things that have you most excited or scared or (laughs) you know what what's what's the thing that you find most compelling right now that you're looking forward to working on over the next uh year say well i mean i'm working on this sort of rethinking the interface for to remove our dependence on on seeing to do audio engineering work that's uh that's something that's really exciting to me because um, there should be no reason that say editing your podcast requires eyes and that'll empower a whole lot of people that right now are stuck using tools that are increasingly designed for sighted people. I'm super excited about some of the stuff going on at Google's project Magenta. Like the, I said, the differentiable DSP thing, uh, ways to automatically transform the underlying sound you sing in and the sax comes out the other end and it's pretty good. I was, I was super impressed. Um, Moving forward, I really like the idea of collaborative uh, creation with our tools and so that as we think about our workflows, you know, what are the things that a musician wants to do? What are the things a musician would love to have another collaborator for but can't afford or can't get in the moment? And can we at least give them something that helps and then, you know, iterate on that? Um, and so that's the stuff I talk about with digital assistant stuff. And 
we didn't even talk about our source separation work, which is multiple people sing or play into one microphone and we peel that out into multiple individual things. Now, um, Isotope is already making a now commercial product based on the kind of research that labs like mine do. Um, but we're imagining getting this kind of stuff more real time, more into hearing aids or, or for like, imagine this, you're live. What if you could, here's, here's a dream of mine as a musician. Um, what if I could just put one big mic up on the, uh, on the stage instead of having to set up, you know, for an hour, all the stuff and tell the mic, turn up the voice a uh, little less violin, more percussion. Actually, we'd never say that more violin, less <laughs> percussion. <laughs> um, so you're not in the more cowbell camp. <laughs> no, uh, I'm just saying you almost never hear the violin live because the percussion dominates it. But if we could have truly good source separation that works live and could be controlled in this eyes free way, you can imagine having this wonderful interaction where most live venues can't actually afford a, a, a good quality engineer or even any engineer. And wouldn't it be amazing if I could just talk to the mixing board and mention the instruments that need to be emphasized, talk about how the voice sounds too tinny and it would just fix it. And, uh, and, and I'll be there. That sounds yeah. a good concert. I actually like to, I'd like to be in the audience because <laughs> it'll sound good. Right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate your taking this time, and I look forward to seeing more interesting work come out of your lab and, and your own efforts. Thank you. It was a pleasure having a chat. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Headroom. Join me next week as I speak with attorney Emily Tate about issues around machine learning and intellectual property. We'll also talk about the implications for AI when bias enters the data set. Headroom is a podcast produced by Isotope Incorporated, music by Smigonaut. Thanks to the team. See you soon.